0: In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Thank you guys for coming, considering uh, the weather and the speaker. Well done. Credit to you. Um, As you have already heard, we are covering a new series. So this is the second week of uh, the series, Introduction to Apologetics. And so last week we began the series and we talked about what apologetics is, um, why we do apologetics, how to go about um, doing it the right way, we spoke about the secular worldview, and we spoke about our worldview, which is the Christian worldview. And we talked about the differences between the two in terms of our origin, our meaning, our morality, our destiny. Um, and we also spoke about um, science. and we, we talked briefly about is science at war with the Christian faith or not? And we, we came to the conclusion that no, science isn't necessarily at war with the Christian faith. But what is at war with the Christian faith is the new atheist uh, or the new atheists who are bent on sort of eliminating God from society altogether. Um, so that's, that was a brief sort of introduction last, last week. Uh, we also spoke about how there is much wisdom to be gained from looking at the apostles, and how the apostles defended the faith um, to Jews and non-Jews. And what you notice in the book of Acts primarily is, and in some of St. Paul's epistles is, is that when, um, when the apostles are dealing with Jews and they're defending the faith against the Jews, they tend to rely heavily on the scriptures and that's, of course, because the Jews at the time, who are the scribes and the Pharisees and so forth, were very well versed in the scripture. Um, but when it came to defending the faith to non-Jews or to Gentiles, then you find that the, um, the apostles, like, for example, St. Paul, would not rely heavily on scripture, but he'd use other means like the environment and nature and so forth. Um, so that's what we spoke about last week. Another, another example that we have from our Coptic uh, tradition is the account of St. Mark's meeting with um, Inianus. So we know that St. Mark, when he reached Alexandria, his sandals basically fell apart and so he looked for a cobbler to repair his sandals and that's where he met Inianos. And as Inianos was repairing St. Mark's uh, sandals, the, the L or the large needle that they use basically pierced through his finger and Inyanus in, in sheer pain basically screamed out to the one God for help um, and then St. Mark proceeded to um, heal him heal inianus and then he told him, he went down to his level and said, let me tell you about this God who you just called out to. And that's where that initial contact was made. So you notice how St. Mark gets down to Inyanus' level, he meets him at common ground, um, and then he he makes contact in that in that sense. And that's essentially the best way to approach someone. Uh, so for example, if someone is from a, a secular worldview, someone who doesn't believe in God necessarily, um, it's likely that they'll have a lot of respect for science. And so you, can, you don't have to necessarily rely on the Bible to appeal to that person, but you can meet them at the common ground, and that is um, through science. And, and I guess that's what tonight's talk is going to be about, um, in the sense that we can provide a, a, a defence for the Christian worldview and for our faith in God by using um, the findings in science. But first, let's start with the Bible. In Psalm 19, the very, verse, uh, the very first verse, we are told, this is King, King David, who is the prophet. He tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I love this verse because I can just imagine, and this is just my imagination, um, that King David might have been sitting around on a clear night, uh, on a clear night looking up at the sky. Maybe he's surrounded by some of his men or his loved ones. Around the camp, around the, not a campfire, but a fire, and uh, and he's looking up at the stars, and he's he's truly marveling at God's creation, right? But I, the more I sort of read about findings in science uh, when it comes to our universe, the more I tend to think that this is more than uh, than King David's way of just glorifying God. It almost seems to me, and this is just my personal view, that this is a prophetic verse. And we'll see why when we go into a little bit of, of the science and the findings, but it's, it's such a profound verse to me, and I thought it's just a nice way to start tonight's, tonight's talk. So we'll do something a little bit different tonight. Um, I was hoping to go through sort of the history uh, over the last hundred years or so of the findings in science when it comes to understanding our universe. Um I'll talk briefly about what happened before the last hundred years or so, but that'll be the focus for tonight. Um, and I wanted to see and I want you to, to see with me what we can what we can find in science to help us strengthen our faith in God. Okay. It's 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 a weird and wonderful universe, that's all I can say. <laughs> so let's let's get started. Okay, before the 1900s, I'm guessing you know who this man is. Before the 1900s, however, there was a theory that was called the steady state theory. Does anybody know what that is? Is anybody familiar with that is, the steady state theory? Okay, essentially what scientists of the time, so before the 1900s, what they believed was that the universe um, was steady, was in in equilibrium, and that it had no start and it has no ending. It's just eternal and it's... Static and it's in equilibrium. Okay, and it's and it's this sort of theory that Darwinism was based on. You know, the theory of evolution is based on um, the idea that um, a chemical reaction took place in just the right environment where the simplest life form um, was formed and basically evolved and evolved and evolved to give you the species that we see today. The only difficulty with that. Well, there's many difficulties, but the biggest hurdle for that particular theory is that it needed... It's statistically impossible. So it needs an infinite amount of time for something like that to even be a possibility. And so scientists at the time who had a firm belief in evolution would say, yep, it's, it's possible because the universe is eternal. That's until this man with the funky hairdo came into the, uh, into the picture. So in 1915, Albert Einstein formulated this theory of general relativity. Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to get into into the science, but I'll just tell you what it means, right? So Einstein was trying to make sense of something. He was actually 26 at the time, believe it or not. He was trying to make sense of something. He was trying to make sense of gravity. And before Einstein, there was Newton's laws, and they were sort of the the common formulas at the time that people were using. But Einstein started to realize that, no, these formulas are good when it comes to your everyday common objects, like an apple falling from the tree, for example. But when you get to the big, bigness and grandness of the universe, these formulas don't exactly add up too well. So he looked at gravitation, he looked at light and the speed of light, he looked at all these things and he developed what is now known as the general theory of relativity. And that theory basically consists of 10 field equations and it was those field equations that are used to describe gravity, gravitation, and uh, planetary motion and things like that. Uh, what Einstein found while he was developing his theory of relativity is that his formulas um, took him back to an instant when time began. Okay, So using his, his theories, he found that he can calculate a time for the beginning of the universe. This upset Einstein uh, so much so that he actually altered the equations. He actually fudged the equations. Uh, and this, is, this has become later known in science as the, um, the fudge factor. So Einstein int- introduced this fudge factor into the equations to make the equations seem uh, output that the universe is eternal, just the way it was, right. So all well and good. But then in 1927, this man, who is a Belgian uh, Roman Catholic priest, his name is Father Georges Lemaitre, he, um, he's actually the man behind the Big Bang Theory. So he, he looked at Einstein's equations, those ten equations, and he realised that there's something wrong with the equation, firstly, but secondly, that the, the equations are pointing to an expanding universe. So our universe is expanding. And if our universe is expanding, if you rewind the clock backwards, you find that there was a time when the universe must have had a beginning, right. And he proposed that the universe must have began with some sort of um, explosion, hence the Big Bang theory, right? An explosion of a primeval atom is what, the, what it was called. Einstein heard of this uh, proposal and he dismissed it, and he was a very big skeptic at the time. That's until 1929, where uh, Edwin Hubble came onto the stage. Edwin Hubble, who's the man you see in that picture, was actually gazing at the stars. He developed a -a two-and-a-half-meter telescope, so a huge telescope for its time, and he used that telescope to study the stars, and he made two huge discoveries. One discovery was that our Milky Way which is the galaxy in which we live, is actually one of many, many, many galaxies. right? And the second thing he discovered was that the distant galaxies are moving away from each other and from us at an increasing rate. So our galaxy, he's looking out into the stars, he found that the galaxies are moving away from each other and away from us, not at a steady rate, but they're actually moving quicker and quicker and quicker as time goes on. If you want to liken it to something, it's like a it's like a a bomb probably the worst example ever but like a bomb going off with the shrapnel rather than the shrapnel going out into all directions and then slowly s- slowing down because of um, drag and whatever else it's actually the shrapnel is actually increasing further and further and faster and faster apart and that's what he noticed about our universe so he consulted with Einstein he called Einstein to come and have a look through the telescope for himself. Um, that's when Einstein realized how wrong he was about introducing that fudge factor into his equations, and he later called that fudge factor the greatest blunder of his scientific career. Okay? And by the way, Einstein believed... Uh, Einstein died believing in, um, like, a superior reasoning power, some, some sort of divine power, some sort of God, but he um, he never did recognize that... Uh, that God is the personal God whom you and I believe in. Um, but he recognised that something this profound and a universe having a beginning means that something greater must have caused this universe to begin. So far, so good? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay, so in 1948, George Gamow came onto the scene and he, he actually had a look at Father George Lemaitre's um, proposal for the Big Bang and he predicted that the Big Bang must have been caused by um, uh, pure energy, some sort of pure energy um, exploding. And, and he predicted that if that was the case, then there should be a presence of some sort of radiation in space that is to be seen um, until until today. George Gamow also had a look at this um, this theory and he predicted that if the theory is correct, then all of our source of matter, all of our source of space and everything that exists in the here and now must have come out of this explosion, must have come out of this Big Bang. Does that make sense at all? Okay. So I wanna I want to draw this because it makes me feel like I'm I'm smart, so I'm going to draw. So he he predicted that... George Gamow. George Gamow developed Father George Lemaitre's theory, right? So he just continued his work, and he predicted, okay, so this is the primeval atom in which the universe must have existed, uh, an infinitely small atom, and the universe exploded out of this small atom Uh, that's space and that's time time actually began at this moment and it goes on before this moment so scientists tell us that they can calculate time back to this very moment but not before then so before then time didn't actually exist and also all of space and all of matter came out of this explosion. So anything that's here outside of our universe, what is it? It's nothingness. That scientists don't know what's out of outside of our universe. Uh, not just that, but its space is not expanding into empty space. No, space itself is expanding. Yeah. If I've lost you, just uh, raise your hands or do something, or just walk out. <laughs> okay. So outside of our universe, there's sheer nothingness. Uh, time began at the time, at the moment of the Big Bang, and all of our space and all of our matter exists within the universe as a result of this initial explosion. Okay. This is what scientists are telling us. I'm not. We're not looking at the Bible at all at this stage. Not just that, but what scientists are telling us as well is that time and matter and space are actually interdependent. So you can't have space without matter, you can't have space without time, you can't have time without the other two and so forth. They're linked, right? They're interlinked. So I said that Gamow predicted one thing. He predicted that the afterglow of the Big Bang... So afterglow of this big, explos- uh, big explosion would have cooled down after the billions of years, um, filling the universe with a radiation of about five degrees above the absolute zero, so just at a particular temperature, basically. Okay. In 1965, so not too long afterwards, these two scientists came on the scene as well, and they their names are Penzias and Wilson. They discovered what George Gamow had just predicted. Um, a few years back. So they they discovered the predicted radiation um, and the discovery of what is now called the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's what George Gamow was talking about. Uh, and as we said, this is the afterglow of the Big Bang. It's the light and heat from the initial explosion, but because the universe is expanding, the light is hard to predict. What's left is is the heat that's left over, okay? This was dubbed the greatest discovery of the 20th century. These guys won the Nobel Prize in 1978 for their findings, and you know how they found this out? It was all by accident. <laughs> These guys were testing a new uh, microwave receiver, and, uh, and and when they turned on the receiver, they found this noise in the background, and they thought, well, so much for a new receiver. They they tried to clean it a bit. They tried to fiddle around with it. The noise was still there. They looked outside. They found bird droppings. They thought, okay, it's obviously the bird droppings. So they spent some time cleaning out the bird droppings. Uh, And then when they came back inside and started testing, if anything, they found that the, uh, the noise was stronger. After some time, and after pointing their receiver into all sorts of different directions, they came to realize that this noise is coming from all directions. And then after they uh, they did some research, they found that it is in fact what George Gamow was predicting. This is what Penzias had to say. Okay, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing. Pay attention to the words that are now being used by scientists, mind you. Okay, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly. The conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one must say, supernatural plan. You see those words that are being used: created is up there, supernatural, delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions. So you can see that scientists are char- starting to change their approach and and the way they look at their discoveries. Okay, so Penzias himself I'm not sure about, but these scientists scientists at the time would have still been big supporters of the steady state theory. And if the steady state if they hold the steady state theory to be true, then it is likely that they were not believers in God because it goes against our creation account. Right? So so that's so that's now how we're starting to see these people speak. In 1992, another discovery came came up, and this was um, was through a satellite called COBE, which stands for the Cosmic Background Explorer. So basically, they developed this this uh, really expensive and really fancy satellite. They launched it into space with the idea that they can try and get better readings out of space because there's less likely to be noise and interference and other things that they would. That they might find here on uh, having the readings here from Earth. Um, So let me just add one thing. One of the predictions of the Big Bang theory is that this background radiation that we talked about earlier should be measurable as slight variations, so as little ripples, right? Kobe actually found these ripples, these ripples in temperature. And Kobe shaped our understanding of the universe as it stands. Um, the scientists behind Kobe also won a Nobel Prize, and this was in 2006, so not not too long ago. This is what we have to hear about Kobe. Kobe not only found the ripples, but scientists were amazed at their precision. The ripples show that the explosion and expansion of the universe was precisely tweaked to cause just enough matter to congregate, to allow galaxy formation, but not enough to cause the universe to collapse back on itself. The ripples were so exact that they were one in 100,000. Um, that's how precise we're talking. And this is in the words of George Smoot. George Smoot is the man who actually, uh, he was the project leader for this for this task. This is what he had to say. He called these ripples the machining marks from the creation of the universe, and also the fingerprints of the maker. And then George Smoot goes on to say, What we have found is evidence for the birth of the universe. It is like looking at God. Again, why, first of all, sorry to bore you with the history, but the, the point of why we're going through all of this is that these findings are profound, because these findings are showing us that the universe had a beginning. Okay, That's obvious by what we just read and what we just saw. But if the universe had a beginning, then something or someone must have caused the universe to begin. Okay? This is what an um, astronomer whose name is Dr. Robert Jastrow has to say. And by the way, he doesn't, he's an agnostic. So he doesn't know whether God exists or not. But this is what he had to say. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Okay? Very powerful words. Now, I'm not here to to sell the Big Bang Theory. I'm not here to tell you that the Big Bang Theory is the way to go, and we have to stick by it. In fact, it doesn't matter whether the Big Bang Theory exists or not. For our faith, it shouldn't matter. If anything, it strengthens our faith, but it it doesn't matter. There are problems with the Big Bang Theory. For for starters, it's not complete. So scientists are able to tell us what happens when they rewind the clock and go back in time up until the moment that the universe is infinitely small. But as soon as they get into the quantum level, uh, level, um, Einstein's theories actually break down. We're now looking at quantum mechanics and, and, and quantum physics, and that's not where Einstein, Einstein, uh, Einstein's theories um, work, basically. So we don't know—we know that that's what happened with the universe. This is what scientists are telling us. We don't know how the universe came into being, how the universe actually, why it exploded into uh, what it is today. I mean, we have a reason, and we know why, but scientists do not yet know why. What we know is that the universe is expanding, and that has been proven. Um, We know that all of matter, all of space, and time began at the moment of the Big Bang. We know that time is relative. And I'll I'll come back to that point. Time is actually relative. So time isn't, do you know what I mean by that? So time isn't static. So if I'm born here, I live, and then I die. And for me, that's a linear line. You know? But what scientists have found and what Einstein's theories have proven is that time actually is not relative. And we'll come back to that. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that the Big Bang theory actually relies on a number of unknowns at the moment, uh, a number of entities, a number of assumptions. So it's not a complete theory. okay? And scientists... By the way, I might just add this. Scientists, because... Well, the ones that don't believe in God, don't like this idea of a Big Bang theory because it shows us the universe must have had a beginning. And so they're looking now at other theories to try and explain a way with why the universe must have had a starting time. So there's weird and wonderful uh, proposals. One of them is the multiverse theory. But again, all of this is purely hypothetical. Nothing has been proven as yet. Okay. What does the Bible say about an expanding universe? I'm just going to read one verse. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, we are told, talking about God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Okay, so we're... In Isaiah, we're told that God stretches out the heavens, expand the universe, and spreads them out like a tented dwelling. Okay? The only difference is he's using very poetic words, and not just that. Notice that we're told in Isaiah that God sits upon the circle of the earth, or upon the sphere of the earth, because the words circle and sphere were actually interchangeable in the Hebrew. Uh, this was 2,500 years before Galileo. Do you know what happened to Galileo? What happened to Galileo? Yeah, he was persecuted by the Catholic Church for proposing that the earth was round. 17 other verses confirm or tell us about God expanding the universe or stretching the universe. Okay? What about time? Scientists have told us that time has a beginning. Proving that time has a beginning is actually very important. It eliminates all the theological possibilities of any other gods, any other deities, besides the Judo-Christian God. Okay, The Judo-Christian God, our God, um, created the universe independent of time, independent of space, of matter, of energy, and so forth. In fact, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God created the heavens and the earth. And if you look at it, um, uh, like if if you put the image in your mind, you get the image that God was outside and he put together the universe. He spoke and the universe came into being. He spoke and things were created. Saint Augustine of Hippo tells us this. He says that God did not make the universe at a point in time but rather simultaneously with time. Okay, that is, he believed that God had made space and time together, and this is exactly what scientists have confirmed. Okay, there are at least eight other places in the Bible that tell us about God being the creator of time. Saint Paul talks a lot about um, the beginning of time, and you know, the time. Uh, what did he say? Um, before time was. He talks about God doing this before time was, and so forth. These are some of the verses. Okay. There's an astrophysicist whose name is Hugh Ross, and he's a Christian, and this is what he says. He says that if time's beginning, so if the beginning of time coincides with the beginning of the universe, um, as the findings in science are confirming, then whatever caused the universe to exist must operate outside of our time. Okay, and I'll just continue his quote he says this he says this conclusion is powerfully important to our understanding of who God is and who or what God isn't it tells us that the creator is transcendent operating beyond the dimensional limits of the universe it tells us that God is not the universe itself nor is God contained within the universe so this goes against any pantheistic ideas, which sort of suggest that God is the energy that's driving the universe, or God is part of nature and part of everything that we see and do and touch and so forth. Okay? Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, and I hope it makes sense, but time is relative. Okay? What does that actually mean? So Einstein's theory predicted this. That's why it's called the general theory of relativity. (laughs) rather than time being a static or a sort of a linear, um, rather than than it being linear, what this theory of relativity is telling us is telling us that if someone is here on Earth, on the ground, and someone else holds the same clock, an identical clock on a mountain, very, very high up, those two clocks over time, over a long period of time, will actually give us different measurements of time. okay that's one thing. this was tested and tried over and over again starting from 1962 until now. You know the movies where you where you where you talk like you see space travel and someone gets into the spaceship shi- uh, ship and they uh, travel for you know light years and so forth and then when they come back to earth earth is aged and you know civilizations have passed and whatever else that's science fiction. But that's based on this idea of time being relative. Why? Because, and again, this is proven. If you get into a spaceship and you travel um, towards the speed of light, so if you increase your speed, um, you actually time actually slows down for that particular person in that particular spaceship than it would for someone who's on Earth. So if you had two, if you had twins. Born at exactly the same time, exactly the same time, let's just pretend, and one got into that spaceship and went on a voyage while the other person sat here on, on Earth. Then when the twin who's traveled comes back, they'd find that the twin who's here on Earth has aged a lot more. I know. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Again, this was this was tested on several several occasions. By the way, if you want to know more about this, don't look at me. Uh, you can just look up time dilation. Okay, that's the actual time dilation. That's the theory itself. Okay. By the way, your GPS navigation, so my phone and, and your you know your phones and so forth, have to take into account this general theory of relativity. Because if they don't, then um, your uh, you know your actual location would be off by miles or by kilometers. Okay, so. Scientists are actually using it now. <laughs> um, this is what Second we're told in Second Peter chapter three verse eight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay. And C.S. Lewis tells us, right? Can you read that up there? If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. So again, if that's if that's me, I was born here and I live my life and this is where I am at the moment, that's my life so far. Yep, for me it's linear, but for God, this is what he sees. He sees me here, he sees me at every aspect of my life and he sees... What's to happen. So, when you look at things like predestination, and we as Christians, we're, we're very cautious to talk about predestination and, and things like that. When you look at this and when you look at that verse, predestination no longer makes sense. And what scientists have to tell us completes the whole picture. Okay? Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, okay. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, what we've just looked at in the last half an hour or so. This is actually an argument that is is used in apologetics. This argument is called the cosmological argument because cosmos means the universe and so it's the argument for the existence of God by looking at the universe. And we saw that things get very, very weird and wonderful as we look up into the skies and that's why I love King David's um, verse there in, in, uh, in Psalm 19. But, It doesn't end there. We saw that our universe is actually tailored perfectly to to suit our needs. Uh, And I'm just going to read out some facts about the universe. The universe has just the right amount of fundamental forces. The rate of expansion of the universe, remember we're talking about the universe expanding at a particular rate, that rate of expansion versus gravity acting within the universe is 1% a 100,000, if, if that ratio was off um, by the slightest, the universe would either collapse in on itself or it will expand far beyond um, what is ideal for humans to develop on planet Earth. This is what Stephen Hawking, who's died recently, this is what he had to say in his own words, and i quote, The rate of expansion would have been chosen very precisely for the rate of expansion still to be so close to the critical rate needed to avoid collapse. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Okay? Stephen Hawking. Hawking, so. What else? So that's one thing. The ratio between the electromagnetic force and the force of gravity, which we talked about, allows for fusion to act at just the right amount and at just the right time. It has to be this ratio, which is, again, 10 to the power of 36. We're talking huge numbers here. If this ratio was slightly off, again, there'd be no fusion, which means there'd be no molecules forming, which means we'd have no Earth, no no, um, no humans, uh, even no... Um, no, galaxy formations and everything else. Okay? And what gets interesting, so that's the second parameter, what gets interesting is scientists are finding more and more of these parameters, and they're telling us that these parameters must have existed at the time of the Big Bang explosion. So, So at this precise moment, some of these parameters must have been at play. Okay? Our universe has, these are galaxies, in case you're wondering, of course they're galaxies, has 100, 100 billion galaxies, apparently, 100 billion galaxies, give or take, and has also 100 billion stars. Okay, So that's how big our galaxy is. Uh, Sorry, that's how big our universe is. Within our universe is this beautiful galaxy, which is called the Milky Way, and that's where we live. Um, And scientists are telling us that even our galaxy is fine-tuned. Our galaxy has this very cool planet, which is not very circular, uh, that races through it at 107,000 kilometres an hour. And it also rotates, let's pretend that's what rotation is, at 1,500 kilometres an hour. This is our planet, planet Earth, planet Earth, oh my goodness, that's the worst star ever. Sorry. Planet Earth has, that's just as bad. As you can tell, I failed art, and I think that's why my parents wanted me to study instead. Okay, has a sun, and we are told that the sun is 150 million kilometres away from planet Earth. If the sun was 151 million kilometres away from planet Earth, there would be no life. If the sun was 149 million kilometres away from Earth, there would be sorry, would be no life. Did I say it? Yeah, there would be no life on planet Earth. It would either be too, whole, uh, too hot or too cold. The Earth rotates at just the right speed too quickly and we'd have too many tornadoes um, and hurricanes, again, not permitting life. If it was too slow, it would start to get hotter and hotter and hotter on once, uh, during the day, and at night it will get more and more colder and it will become freezing. So we've got a few other constants there, we are told that Earth, uh, Earth has a 23.5 degree tilt. Okay, not like the other planets. Um, 40% of that tilt comes from the Sun, and the other 60% comes from the Moon. Okay, if that if that was not the case, again. No life would exist because one side of Earth would get colder and one side would get progressively hotter. Do you know what scientists are telling us how the moon came into our world? Sorry? No, what they're actually telling us is the moon was a nice big rock that happened to be flying across our galaxy and the gravitational pull of the Earth put it into um into our rotation, and so it's stuck around since then. And it's because of the moon that we are able to live on the earth. Not just that, but there is a nice big planet. Does anybody know what planet this is? Jupiter. Jupiter. Does anybody know anything about Jupiter? Okay, Jupiter is like our big, big brother, our big, uh, big, uh, muscly brother. Jupiter. Earth would not exist without Jupiter because Jupiter is actually like a massive vacuum cleaner that sucks out all of the um, media showers, all of the large rocks flying past. They get sucked into Jupiter's um, gravitational pull. Otherwise, all these foreign objects would be hitting Earth and, again, no life would exist. Okay? More constants. More parameters. Oxygen, 21%. If oxygen was 25%, we'd have spontaneous fires on Earth all over the place. If it was 15%, we'd suffocate. What about lightning? Even the amount of lightning on Earth is precise. More than it would be, and again, we'd have too many fires. If it was less than it is, then the the nitrogen in the soil would not be at the right amount, which means our vegetation would suffer and so forth. Seismic activity, so even our earthquakes and the tectonic plate shifting, is that just the right amount? If it was any more than that, we'd have things like tsunamis and, and obviously, a massive loss of life. If it was any less than that, um, the, um, the nutrients below the Earth's crust would not be released, and again, that would affect um, our, our soil and our vegetation. The speed of light is that just the right amount? Uh, if it, if it wasn't at just that amount again the whole universe would not exist helium levels co2 levels all these all these are precisely tailored towards our our existence okay these are called the anthropic constants and scientists are telling us there are actually hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more and they're discovering more as they understand how our planet behaves and how the universe behaves it's very interesting isn't it You start to think, just by looking at these, you start to think that there is someone out there that's tweaking each and every one of these as if they were dials. Someone has preset our universe to exist, to, to be created just the way it is, to expand just the way it is, to survive our earth, to survive just the way it is, and everything to work together by the way, scientists are telling us that if you if you stuff around with one of these, for example, you blow one of these constants out, one of these dials, you turn it too high, all the other constants suffer. Okay, So they don't only just have to work on their own, they have to work with all the other parameters. This is another argument for the existence of God, and this is called the theological argument, which basically means an argument for design. So when you look at our universe... When you look at our Earth, you see all these anthropic constants, and scientists find it very hard to explain why the universe is just the way it is. Again, there are other theories that have come out because of this, and none of them have been proven. I want to I want to quote one particular atheist, Christopher Hitchens, who I spoke about last week, and this is what he had to say. He's actually passed on, so he's not alive anymore, but this is what he had to say. <clears throat> He says, without question, the fine-tuning argument, the theological argument, was the most powerful argument of the other side. Okay? So what we just went through today is two arguments, the cosmological argument and the theological argument. And these two arguments together form a very, very strong case for the existence of God, and they go through and they emphasize everything that we know about God through, through the Bible. Our God is not just a physician, the true physician. He is not just our healer. Um, he's, he's not just a personal God who seeks out our, our interest, our best interest. He is the creator of everything, including time, and he is the greatest scientist, the ultimate engineer, if you, if you want to call him that. And that's why when I look at King David's Psalm 19, I I get the sense that he knew a little bit more about the universe um, than we do, and we're slowly catching up just now. I just wanted to conclude with one verse. There are many other verses, by the way, to support why the universe and our earth are just the way they are, but this one's got to be my favourite. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12, this is what we're told. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. And He has stretched out the heavens at His discretion, and I think that sums up everything that we talked about tonight. Um, I'm done. Are there any comments or questions? I've just just before you go, I've just put everything that we talked about tonight into a little pamphlet, so just you can grab one on your way out if if you like. I'm sorry if I've confused you. I'm sorry if I've given you a headache. I can tell that some people are going to walk away looking for a Panadol. I apologize, but I just find this amazing, I I really do. Uh, Any questions or comments?